Take your Bibles, turn with me if you've got them, to John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, everything we'll talk about will be on the screen today, or you can look up on your on your phones or, or wherever. But we're going to be actually in two or three spots today, um, starting in John chapter 21. And we're going to conclude a series of messages that we started several weeks ago on this idea of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness. We've watched these videos each week about people that had something done to them, and they are in return having to forgive other people. And we've talked throughout this series about the reality of our need for forgiveness and our need to forgive. And so we started the whole thing talking about the fact we use this story of Jesus reconciling Peter, of bringing him back in John chapter 21 to show that Jesus loves us with an all-encompassing, never-ending, always-pursuing love. That He is always after us. That He's not He's not going to let up. He's not going to quit coming after us. That He loves us that much. And for Peter, he set the scene to remind him of that moment where Peter had rejected him. But the point was not just to remind Peter that he had rejected him, but to restore him, to show him that he was still loving him. We talk about even in the resurrection story, um, in the account of Mark, where Mark says, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is pointing out his love for us. A week after that, we talked about the fact that without Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. Absolutely, absolutely nothing. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this reality that forgiven people forgive, not should forgive, not might forgive, might should think about it or consider it, but that if you are forgiven by God, the natural response is that you then forgive other people. And last week, um, as we were kind of moving towards the end of the series, we talked about following Jesus means going wherever he calls, whenever he asks to do whatever he wants. And so today we're going to finish up this series with one more message out of John 21 and then branching out into a couple other places in Scripture. But here's the reality of this series. This is not one of those series that you take it and you hear it and you go, man, that was great and I don't ever have to worry about that again. Because the truth is need for forgiveness and the need to forgive is something that happens all the time. In fact, I read a quote this week from somebody. It was on the Internet, so it's got to be true. And I don't know, it was anonymous that somebody was quoting somebody who quoted somebody that said. All right? But this is the quote. I liked it. It says, the problem with life is that it happens every day. All right, y'all apparently don't get that. All right? The problem with life is that it happens every day. And the reality is we can talk about forgiveness today, get it all wrapped up. I'm forgiven by God. I'm accepting that forgiveness. I'm ready to move on. And there are people in my life that I'm forgiving and that I need to forgive. I'm doing that and I'm moving on. And then tomorrow's going to come and there are going to be new sets of things you need to be forgiven for. And there are going to be new people that you need to forgive. And so it's an everyday kind of life. And what we need to do is we need to build this kind of system into our lives of constantly asking for, receiving, and then living out the forgiveness that God has given us. And then extending it to people that are all around us. So in John chapter 21, there's this great story. And before all this, before we get to where it had, um, what we're going to talk about this morning, you, you've been around, you know the story. If not, you've probably heard the story if you grew up in church, but um, Jesus is appearing to his disciples third time. They're out fishing. They don't catch anything. Jesus throws on the other side. They pull it in, 153 fish. Peter jumps out of the boat, gets to the shore, goes back, helps them get the fish in. They cook a meal around a charcoal fire. They all sit around and talk and eat. It's a great time. And then it says, when breakfast was over, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. And then Jesus asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time. We've talked about that every week. It's because he had denied him three times. Jesus asked three times. And when he does that, it drives it deep down. Yes, Jesus, you, do you love me? He asked. And Peter says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. What we have in this passage is a very simple construction. The way it is written, the way it is told, the way the story is laid out is very simple. It's a question, it's an answer, it's a commission. If you're a grammar person, it's an interrogative followed by a declarative followed by an imperative. If you're like, I don't want to think about school, it's the summer. It just means he asked him a question, he gave an answer, and he told him what to do. And each time, it's the same basic question. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? And there are a couple of significant things about that question that we want to talk about before we get to what it means for us. The first one is, it's significant that he calls him Simon. What do we call him? Peter. What's the name his parents gave him? Simon. And there's a significant moment in Scripture when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Son of God. Jesus says, I'm going to start calling you Peter, the rock, the original rock, right? You may not have hosted Saturday Night Live, but he was the original rock, right? And so that's what he called him, Peter, when he called him that Peter. But here he's saying to him, the relationship is in question. You're questioning his status as the rock. He doesn't call him the rock. He calls him Simon, son of John. It reminds him of his human frailty. It reminds him of the fact that without Christ, he is just who he was as his parents' child. He doesn't have the purpose. He doesn't have the fulfillment that he had as a follower of Jesus. It's a reminder to Simon, is that who you want to be or do you want to be the rock? Do you want to be in a strong relationship where you're speaking for me, where you're living for me, where you're living out the calling on your life? Simon. It also signals this is a straightforward question. There's no playing around. There's no joking around. This is straightforward. Simon, do you love me? Now, my, my thought is that if Jesus asked that question of Simon today, of Peter today, the next question that one of us would ask, well, what, what do you mean by love? Like, like, what do you mean by love? And it's an asking pop culture all over the place. What is love? How deep is your love? Is this love? Where did my love go? What's love got to do with it? People ask that question all the time. What do you mean, love? I read this week, uh, a group of kids from four to eight were asked what they thought love meant. Now, first of all, this, oh, this would be cute. This would be awesome. We'll see this. There'll be funny answers. And then I read it and I was like, no, they're, they're kind of spot on here for the most part. For instance, Billy, um, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Bobby, age seven, says, love is what's in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Nika, age six, says, if you really want to learn to love better, you should start loving someone you hate. 
Tommy Six says, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they've known each other for so long and so well. <laughs> Any spouses with an amen here today? Cindy, AJ, says, during my piano recital, I was on stage and I was scared. And I looked out into all the people watching me and I saw my daddy. And he was waving and smiling and he was the only one doing that. And I wasn't scared anymore. That's love. Rebecca, age eight, says, my grandmother got arthritis. She couldn't bend over and paint her toenails, so my grandfather did it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. And then Jessica, eight, says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, but if you mean it, you should say it a lot. Jesus is looking at Simon, and he says, Simon, listen, you were my closest ally. You were my right-hand man. You were the guy, and you betrayed me. You rejected me. My question is, do you love me? There's been a lot written and a lot talked about that when he asks that question, Jesus will ask and use one word for love in the original language, and Peter will respond with another one. Now, not to get too deep in the Greek here, but Jesus will say, do you agape me? Do you agape love me? And Peter says, I phileo, I love you. There's a lot been made about Jesus asking, do you love me with the love like God loves? Do you love me with a never-ending, always-pursuing, never-ceasing love? And that Peter responds with, I love you like a friend. I don't know that the distinction is intended to be that severe here. I don't know that what he's saying is that Peter can't live up to that. I think, and this is just the way you look at it in the ancient literature, that they just were using different words sometimes. But the point of it is Peter is being asked three times, and each time Jesus is pressing into it, pressing into the reality, pressing into it and saying, do you love me? First things first, before we get to reconciliation, before we get to repairing your image, before we get to recast you out into the world and your job and your purpose before we get to the recommissioning i need to know the question do you want to be a part of this do you love me and the reason for that is because when peter sinned just like when we sinned it was his choice he walked away he betrayed jesus he did it and he was asking peter do you want to come back The reality is that if you read Scripture, you can come away with nothing but the truth that God wants to forgive us, restore us. He wants to bring us back into the family. He wants to close the gap that is between us and them, accept us where we are. The question becomes, are we ready for that? And the question that Jesus asked each and every one of us in this room today is, Lyle, do you love me? I didn't ask if you want to know about Jesus. I didn't ask if you want to talk about Jesus. I didn't ask if you want to think about Jesus. I didn't ask you if you want to work for Jesus. What I'm asking is, do you love him? Are you willing to sacrifice whatever it takes in order to be in a relationship with him where he has given you purpose and meaning for the rest of your life? Because when he asks Peter that question, there are going to be things that come after that's going to tell him that, listen, I'm not saying that if you say yes to this, it's going to be the most glamorous life here and now. Yes, there is the promise of heaven. Yes, there is the promise of the resurrection. Yes, there is the promise of days never ending in my presence. But there's also the reality of struggle and strife and difficulty and persecution that's going to come your way. And in the midst of that, Peter, are you going to choose to remain in me and I in you? Or are you going to choose to deny me and walk away? again do you love me 
And for many of us in this room, that's really where the sermon needs to stop. Now, I've got more to come in a minute. But until that question is settled in your life, you don't need to worry about anyone else. And Jesus looks at you and says, do you love me? For some of you, the question is, are you willing to give up your sin and the mistakes and the failings of your life and follow me? Are you willing for the first time to accept the forgiveness that I gave in dying on the cross for your sins and being raised again to life? Are you willing to give that up to follow me? For some of you, you've done that, but in your life, there are so many things that have gotten in the way of your relationship. You've just gradually walked away from the Lord farther and farther and farther away from him. And he's saying, are you willing to give up that and this and that in order to restore the closeness of that relationship and walk in the purpose for which you were intended to walk? Do you love me? For some of you, You may not have denied Jesus verbally around a fire when he's on trial. But in the way that you've lived your life, in the way that you have gone about your business, in the way that you have lived, you have denied him. And he's just simply asking, do you love me? Paul says that his desire was to know Christ the power of his resurrection, and to join with him in what? The fellowship of his suffering. Jesus says, are you willing? Do you love me enough to, yes, glory in the power of the resurrection, but also join me in the fellowship of my suffering? And after he asked that question each time, and Peter responds, Lord, you know I do. Lord, you know it. I want it more than anything. I want that relationship restored. Yes, I'm sorry, Lord, for what I did. Each time that he gives him a task. And here's the important thing to understand. What he says to Peter, what he says to you, what he says to me is, you can tell me with your mouth all day long that you love me, but I will determine whether or not you truly do by the way that you live. By the priorities in your life. By the choices you make. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. It's not the first time Jesus has given us. It's not the first time that God has given us. In the Old Testament, before Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament, the Old Testament, he tells the people, this is my covenant, this I will keep. If you will keep your end, you are showing me that you are invaluing the relationship that we have and that you are joining me with that. But if you don't, then judgment will come. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, if you hear me and you put into practice what I've said, you're like a man who has built his house on the rock. But if you hear these words and you do not put into practice what I've said, then you're like a man who has built his house on sand. Jesus is saying to him, yes, you say that you love me, you say that you love me, but you truly will show me your love. By the way, you lead and treat my people. Jesus says, you will show me you love me by the way you lead my people. I want to talk about something with this passage that we don't normally talk about, at least at this church. Some churches focus on this at times, but we really haven't. But 
Here's the thing that, that we see in this passage and that I believe is happening. I believe what is happening in this recommissioning of Peter is that Jesus is passing along the mantle of leadership from himself to Peter shortly before he ascends to heaven. And when you think about it, Jesus is an amazing leader. Now, when we talk about leaders, we normally think business guys. We think of, you know, big time guys that are, that are really doing a great job. But Jesus is an amazing leader in every sense of the word. I saw this quote from Andy Stanley this week. He said this, Jesus built his brand in three years and has hundreds of thousands of franchises all over the world without racking up a single frequent flyer mile. Now think about that for a minute. Three years Jesus has, he spends that time with a group of 12 guys. One of them betrays him. Twelve guys, he spends it with them, he invests in them. Other disciples gather around. And today, there are over a billion people that will gather around the world to celebrate Jesus. Do you know how many churches there are just in kind of this little area? Somewhere around a hundred. A hundred. Now, obviously, this area is a little different. Can you imagine how many churches there are in Davidson, Robertson, and Sumner County? We're not even talking about Wilson or Williamson, but think about that. How many churches there are. Now, even if we say, okay, but not all of those are Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming, trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior kind of churches. Well, if you just say half of them, it's still an astonishing amount of churches that were started from a guy that did not travel out of his home region for three years. didn't have any mass communication. He couldn't Twitter anybody or text anybody or Facebook Live anybody. He couldn't broadcast his sermons for people to hear. Any kind of communication. And he couldn't get around on anything more than a camel or a donkey. And yet, we're here today. And he modeled for Peter what he wanted him to do. And so when he says, feed my sheep, when he says, feed my lambs, when he says, shepherd my sheep, he's saying, do for the people what I have done for you. And that's what leadership truly looks like. There's a story, actually, that shows Jesus' model of leadership. We're going to look at that real quickly and then look at a couple other things that will be done. But in Mark chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's having this conversation with them. And he wants them to know that there are some things going about to happen. I mean, he says in Mark chapter 10, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Taking the twelve, this is his main group aside, he began to tell them things that would happen to him. So he tells them, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And he gets even more graphic with them about what's going to happen predicting him. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And he will rise after three days. Jesus is preparing them for what is about to happen. He's saying, get ready. This is going to happen. It's almost like he's getting them prepared because it's not going to be easy to take. All right? For instance... Yesterday, we thought it might be good to prepare our children, our sons, for what was about to happen. Because we had a recital yesterday. My two girls took tumbling and ballet this year, and they had a recital yesterday. And there were 44 acts in the recital. That's four, four. And Ava was number 35. And Maddie was number 44. 
Okay? So that's a long wait for your girls to come on stage. And we were going to have with us a 14-year-old and an 11, a 10-year-old, almost 11-year-old. And so we thought it was wise. Susan said we need to prepare them for what's coming. Because there were a couple of things they had to be prepared for. First of all, we were going to sit there for a long time during this thing, okay? Secondly, they had to dress up to go. And when you tell a 14-year-old and 10-year-old boy that they have to dress up in good clothes on Saturday morning, it's like shining a light on a vampire. No, like no, right? Like absolutely no. I'll just go in that you're not going in your pajama pants and a t-shirt that's got holes in it. No, you're not, all right? Right? Then I just won't. No, you're going. You're going. We're just preparing you that it's going to happen. Jesus looking at him and says, we're preparing you. This is going to happen. And I want you to see just how tone deaf the disciples were, okay? Because listen, he's poured out his heart. Guys, I want you to know something. He pulls them over to the side. Listen, they're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I want you to know this because this is, this is from, from deep inside. I need you to know this. It's not going to be good. We're going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. I just want you to know. It's going to be okay because three days later I'm coming back from the grave. But I want you to be prepared. It's going to be shocking. Look at the next verse. James and John, okay, two of the three of the inner circle, approach him and say, hey, man, um, Jesus, that's cool. Hey, um, we need you to do something for us. But the way they say it is, we need you to do whatever we ask you. That's kind of bold, isn't it? Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? He asks, and then they say, okay, 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 here's the thing. Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in glory. You want to talk about a tone-deaf question, right? Jesus just said, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be mocked, it's going to be terrible. Three days later, I'll rise, but I want you to know it's going to be bad. Okay, Jesus, that's good, that's good. All right, um, let's get to the main thing. Hey, when you're kind of a big dog, can uh, like we be your top dogs? I love the way the next verse says this. When the ten disciples heard this, the other ten, they began to be indignant with James and John. And all of God's people said, amen, "Amen, right? Uh Uh-huh, absolutely. Can you imagine that? And then Jesus says to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those oppositioned act as tyrants. He says, listen, this is the way it works in the world. When you're a leader, you take advantage of people, you use people, you do whatever it takes to get ahead in the world. You move them in a direction to get your goal accomplished, whatever it means. It still works that way, right? Just think in the sports world. Who are the greatest coaches of our era? Bill Belichick? Pete Carroll. He won one, and they think he's great, all right? Bill Belichick, right? I don't like the guy, the Bill Belichick, right? Greg Popovich, right? Nick Satan, I mean Saban, uh, right? Right, I mean, and when you think of those guys, you think of, man, those guys are friendly and cuddly. And, man, I just love to sit down and have a conversation with them, right? No, what do you think about? You think of hard, strict, my way or the highway. If you don't like it, I'll kick you off the team. I'll trade you. You're done. He says, that's the way you see it in the world. But then Jesus says this, it is not so among you. He adds, on the contrary, whoever wants to become great becomes your servant. Whoever wants to be first becomes a 
slave. And just to remind him that's what he's doing, he tells him what he's going to do. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And this is what he tells Peter. He's got Peter there and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, you know I do. He says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. What he tells him is the way that you ought to do it is to lead like I have led. And to lead like I have led means that you take advantage, that you leverage your leadership for the benefit of others. That whatever energy you have, whatever life you live, you use it to benefit other people. Feed lambs. Feed the sheep. Shepherd the sheep. You say, well, what does all that have to do with amnesty and forgiveness? Here's the main point, all right? Then we'll look at one passage of Scripture and we're done. We have been forgiven to take care of each other willingly and sincerely through an example of humility and faithfulness. We are forgiven to take care of each other willingly and sincerely through an example of humility and faithfulness. Now, where did I get all of that? If you've got your Bible still open or you've got your apps on, 1 Peter chapter 5, and then we're done. 1 Peter chapter 5. I think this is interesting. This is a great way to close the series out because this is one of the last writings. I know you've got 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but they're written kind of close together. This is at the end of Peter's life, and I love the attitude difference we see in Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 from the rest of who we know him to be. This is Peter after he's led for years, after he's fed the sheep, after he's shepherded the sheep, after he's fed the lambs. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 2, he uses the exact same word that Jesus used with him. Shepherd God's flock among you. He said, take care of one another. Take care of each other. If you're in a leadership position, take care of each other. If you're in a place where you can serve within the church body, take care of one another. If you're a part of a family that you um, are following and being a part of as the seek the Lord, take care of one another. Shepherds God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion, forever. Amen. Peter says to the people that are leading in a church, to the people that are a part of a church, this is how you live. He is showing how he lived out Christ's command to take care of the sheep, to shepherd the sheep, to feed the lambs. He says that we need to live in a place where we take care of each other, not under compulsion, but willingly. This isn't a have to. This isn't a have to be a part of a church. This isn't a have to serve my fellow Christians. This isn't a have to get to know people because they're in Christ. This is I get to do that. There are things at my house that I have to do. Amen. I mean, I don't like vacuuming. But somebody at our house has to vacuum, right? I don't like putting dishes up. 
put them in the dishwasher, wash them in the sink. But somebody at our house has to do that, right? And we have chores that we kind of do around because none of us like doing it, but we have to do it. We don't take the trash out for a week. That's a problem. We tried that in college with my roommates in the dorm. We didn't take trash out for like a few days. It got pretty bad, right? There are things you have to do. There are things that you get to do. And in my family, it's things like watching my girls perform on a stage when they've been working on something all year long. It's getting to baptize two of my kids in this baptistry a couple of weeks ago. It's getting to just play and have fun and sing together and watch movies together and just enjoy one another. There are things that we have to do and there are things that we get to do. Peter says that when it comes to our fellow believers, that following Christ, being forgiven, means that this is something we get to do. We don't have to. Sincerely, he means without wax, pure, clean motives. There's nothing holding us back. With humility. It means that we are to serve, not to find our gain, not to do our thing, but to serve in a place where we are humble, where we are serving, where we're not looking for any benefit. We're not trying to get ahead. We're not hoping for payback. We're not hoping, man, if I take care of him, that when time comes, he'll take care of me. Or I know him. He's in a place of position that he can help me out. I'm going to serve him so he'll help me out. This is pure, clean motives. And it's humility, like I genuinely want to serve you with faithfulness. He says we've got to stand firm. And then he gives the example there that the enemy is like a prowling lion looking who he can devour. And the point he's making is, and I think he's pulling back to his own past, there was a moment in my past when I did not realize the activity of the enemy and I gave in and I denied my Savior. And he's saying, if you're going to be someone that's a part of a community that's really loving on people, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to show your forgiveness, if you're going to show the power of forgiveness in your life, you're going to love people not because you have to, but because you want to. You're going to love people with pure motives. You're going to love people with humility. And you're going to keep at it. Just keep showing up. And when the moment comes that you have to stand firm against the enemy, that's what you do. He compares um, the adversary to a lion. Anybody here ever encountered a lion? Anybody here glad they've never encountered a lion? Right? I loved lions since I was like since I was born. I loved lions because in all those books where you have your name, you know, like you always look for the first letter of your name. Then, like the books of animals, like A is for Ant, B is for B. L was always for lion, right? And I like Aslan from Chronicles of Narnia. I've never seen a lion in person other than at a zoo where there's a large uh, cage and a big, you know, thing that they supposedly can't jump over. But I love the majesty and the look of a lion. The picture that he gives here is of a lion prowling around looking at any opportunity to pounce on you. And that our enemy is constantly doing that. That's going to seem like a strange segue, but you realize that God has a sense of humor, right? So many times from this pulpit, I've talked about my love for cats. That's called sarcasm, all right? Right? And a couple of weeks ago, I get a phone call, 
excited voice from Luke on one end. I'm like, okay, something weird's going on. And then Susan gets on the phone and says, we were laying out in the hammocks and playing outside, and we heard something crying in the bushes. And it was a seven-week-old kitten that apparently had been abandoned by its family and left at our place. Now, I'm going to talk to Maddie about our prayer life because apparently she's been praying for this to happen for months on end, all right? And so we took the cat, because you can't leave the cat outside, apparently. And you can do that. We took the cat in. We had a vote on the family of whether or not we were going to keep the cat overnight to see if we could find a place for the cat. And the vote was five to one. Um, the vote today remains five to one, right? And so we put it out there on social media. We put it everywhere. We let people know. We talked about it. And it's not encouraging when you put it out. The first thing you get back is, oh, I think it's found the perfect family. I don't think so. I don't think that's what we're going with here. So we now have a cat. Unless any of you here are missing a black cat, my kids' hearts would break. But if any of you are missing a black cat, all right? But here's what has happened in our house. The cat stalks me. Right? Like, it stalks me. Like, I made very clear on the front end, this is y'all's cat. Y'all take care of it. I'm not doing anything with the cat. Like, you know, we're going to do all that. By the way, like, my family's leaving, going to camp and trips and West Tennessee this week. Guess who's going to be left at home with the cat and the dog? Me, right? But this is your cat. You're taking care of it. We're not doing anything with it. And I just ignore the cat, and the cat stalks me. Sitting in the recliner yesterday, which we're going to have to have a conversation with the cat, because when I'm sitting in my recliner, I don't intend to be attacked, all right? That's like private, that's good time there. Sitting in the recliner, and out of nowhere, running, jump, attack my toe. Grabs on, holds on, prowling around, right? You know lions are just big cats. And the picture he gives, it's easier for me to picture because this cat's been in my house. That's not a good thing, all right? By the way, in the first servant, I called it my cat. It almost hurt me when I said it, all right? But this cat prowls around looking at all times to kind of for an opportunity to attack, right? Peter says that our enemy is constantly looking for an opportunity to attack. Now, here's the difference. That cat is like seven weeks old. It, I, it, it just gets moved away very easily. A lion is different. He didn't compare our enemy to a kitty cat. He compared him to a lion. And the question is, are we going to stand firm? Willingly, sincerely, humbly, faithfully loving one another. Because a sign of true forgiveness is that's how we treat each other. And when the enemy attacks, we're firm and standing together. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And if you do, take care of my people. Jesus asked you, do you love me? And if your answer is yes, 
Maybe you're here and you need to kind of move back towards Christ. You've walked away. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you have denied him in some way of action or speech. You need to come back. But he says, do you love me? And if you say yes, then he says, take care of my people. Let's pray together.